For so many modern-driven women, life is about being more than one thing. We're multidimensional, and so are our conversations. We carry multiple identities. We can be both mother and artist, both attorney and entrepreneur, both clinician and CEO, both humble and proud. Life for women like us is about both, about all of the above. It's about the and. Our stories are the stories of so many of you. We wanted the freedom and flexibility to live life on our own terms, and we felt the pull to be more present with our families. But we still felt drawn to contribute, to build, and to create. And we wanted to establish financial security for ourselves and our children. For us, that looked like founding software companies, but for you, that may look different. Our mission is to help other smart, conscious women build and grow businesses on the internet. Starting up online can be overwhelming and isolating, but it doesn't need to be. Join us for honest conversations about what it really means to grow an online business that aligns with your values and adds something meaningful to the world. I'm Sandy Connery. And I'm Jenny Barcelos. And you're listening to the And She Spoke podcast. In our business, we're big fans of financial literacy and accountability. Knowing your numbers is an essential aspect of building a successful business and inherent responsibility for any entrepreneur. We also believe that what you focus on grows. So pay attention to your money. How do we stay up to speed on our numbers? We use Bench for our bookkeeping. It's simple, elegant, and saves us so many hours that would otherwise be spent neck deep in receipts on the other side of a spreadsheet. Each month, our transactions are automatically imported into Bench, and we get on-demand financial reports. We even enjoy opening up our profit and loss statement to review each month. And when tax time comes around, we are up to date and ready to go. And this is what financial empowerment feels like. Head on over to anshe.co slash bench to save 20% off your Bench accounting plan for the first six months. Welcome to the And She Spoke podcast. Today, we welcome back Casey Erin Clark, and we were delighted to meet for the first time her partner, Julie Fogg. Casey and Julie are both trained actors and voice and speech coaches. Together, they co-founded Vital Voice Training. They believe that your voice is a powerful tool for expression and connection, and that true powerful communication happens when your voice is grounded in the core of who you are. Last April, in episode 193, we spoke with Casey about the sound of our voice and our conversation focused on what women believe they are supposed to sound like to be taken seriously. Feel free to go back and listen to that if you missed it because it was a good one. But in this episode, we focus less on physical voice, but more on the mental and emotional aspects of living in a pandemic and how we express ourselves online. Surprisingly, we spent a lot of time discussing voice and presence on Zoom, and I did not see that coming when we planned out this episode. But the conversation is so good and so real, and it's actually what we're all experiencing living on Zoom these days. So these two are so much fun, and it is always such a joy to meet other female business partners. So enjoy this episode with Casey and Julie. Welcome, Julie and Casey, to the show. We are so happy to have you back, Casey, and to get to meet you, Julie. We so are glad thrilled to be, be here. here. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> There's like four of us on this. We have to do a lot of body language to know who's about to speak. Like, I got, put your hand up. <laughs> so for those of our listeners that are not familiar with the Vital Voice, Julie, do you want to give us a little explanation of what your company is and what you guys do together? 
Sure. So we are a public speaking communication and what we originally started as a voice coaching company. We were founded in 2014 in response to what we were seeing as this overwhelming force that was teaching women to sound like middle-aged white dudes. And that was the only way to authority and gravitas. And with our acting backgrounds, we know that is patently untrue. And also voices are just much more interesting when the full person shows up, not the costume of who they think you want to hear. I mean, I think that's true in pretty much everything. So we used our acting backgrounds and speech backgrounds to say, oh, hey, I think we could do this differently and embarked on this journey in how do we teach people shame-free to use their full voice, access their full power, but also recognizing that we exist in other systems that we don't fully have control over. So the work has expanded from just we're voice coaches to, and now we want to take on corporate culture and communication culture to work on equality and inclusion issues within those as well. So we work with private individuals, we work with corporations, we do, we used to go to conferences back when conferences, <laughs> Today, conferences were happening, yes. And making <laughs> connections with people, mostly because I think as we've discovered the way we do things that really does lead people towards their most powerful voice, I think a lot of people just didn't know that was an option. I think everyone thinks, oh, I better do my Google research and follow all of the HBR advice and I'll suddenly be taken seriously. And it just doesn't work that way. There's so many double binds. There's so much dangerous terrain to get through in anyone's journey to leadership or to power, including in our, how we use our voices. So prepping you for the whole, you know, Lord of the Rings, <laughs> we're going to Mordor journey. We've got the Sam cakes. We've got the little, like, <laughs> we've got an army. Yes. I love it. And for those listeners, we do have an episode that aired almost a year ago or before the pandemic. So early in 2020 with Casey, who you spoke so beautifully about some of these like beliefs we have about our, the sound of our voice and how women really struggle with that. And just as Julie said, that we think we have to sound like a male, a white male newscaster to have authority. So, and then of course, Casey, you were on our Thrive Conference in the fall and we we're like, you know what? She's got to come back on. So it's so great <laughs> to have you both here. So since the pandemic, tell us, Casey, what has your business been like? What have you had to do differently? How has life, life changed for you? You know, I talked to you, I think literally a week before the shutdown began. It was my last travel trip. I was in Illinois visiting my parents right. and singing you, in a space yeah. with my parents. With dad, and other yeah. Oh gosh. Yeah. So yeah, life changed really abruptly. I mean, to be sort of very transparent, we lost quite a bit of corporate business that we thought we were having coming because everybody shut that stuff down really quickly. You know, a lot of people I think were being very budget conscious. I don't think many people were in like personal development mode at the beginning of the pandemic. And we had a moment where we were like, okay, so all of our plans for 2020 are now out the window. What do we do? And the thing that I'm really proud of is that we did not immediately jump into okay, how can I use the pandemic to sell people things? Because we definitely saw a lot of that. And across all industries, of course, in our industry, what we saw was this plethora of on-camera classes. Because of course, people are suddenly on camera and using their voices. And there were legitimate concerns about that. But the way we saw people teaching it didn't feel like how we wanted to teach it. And we wanted to really understand, like, what is the issue here? Is it that they don't know how high to put their computer, maybe, but that's like 
the least, that's like the lowest level. We were interested as we always are in what's really happening here. What are the real challenges? And for us, where we ended up diving in on that was how do we actually make connections digitally? And especially how do we make connections digitally when everyone is in this incredibly heightened state of stress? And so that's where we got to really dive in with our acting backgrounds and think about given circumstances, think about status exchange, think about trust building in this new medium that we're in. So it's like, yeah, we can tell you how to look better on camera and sound better on camera and like use your gestures and blah, 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 blah. But what we're really interested in is this. So that was fun. And then kind of tackling that, getting to work with some corporations on that and getting to go in there we ended up this summer diving into the topic of authenticity. And we started out to write, we were like, okay, we've got a little bit more time on our hands than we usually do. What do we want to do with it? Well, we'd like to, again, dive in depth and into topics. This is a big theme for us. And the one we we were going on all these walks together, just talking on the phone and talking about all of the things that we're interested in. And the topic that kept coming up was authenticity and the idea of what it means to have an authentic voice. Our first tagline as Vital Voice Training was authentic voice, authentic presence, authentic power. We were very into this idea from the top. But as our company kept growing, we, I think, realized, and especially this summer as we're grappling with the anti-racism movement, as we're grappling with especially how companies are responding to to racism, the complications of authenticity. And that's where we wanted to dig in because I think authenticity is one of those buzzwords that is very popular. I mean, right? Everybody wants to be authentic. And I think more, most, especially young, millennial-driven, modern workplaces are like, we want you know our, our workers to feel like they can bring their authentic selves to work as if that's an easy thing to do. And it is not an easy thing to do. And we wanted to know why. So we thought we were going to write like a, you know, like a 10 to 12 page sassy, sexy white paper. And we ended up writing a 53 page book and doing the research for that and the writing of that and synthesizing those ideas was so satisfying. So that kind of became our summer. And then the fall things started picking up again. I think people were like, okay, we're going to be here for the long haul. Like maybe I could do some personal development again. And so it ended up, you know, 2020 could have been and was for so many people just a really genuinely terrible year. And I think for us, it was a year of real growth and introspection. And that was an incredibly long answer that I just gave. (laughs) Fine, That's fine. I do remember you saying that you and your partner wanted to write a book. So thank you, COVID, for allowing that little window, right? Now we're working on our second one. (laughs) That's awesome. Speaking of the pandemic, I've been waiting to ask you both this question for so long because I'm hoping you have some insight for me. When people have asked me recently how I'm doing, the only word that really comes to mind, because I can't stand that question, especially during the pandemic, because like, how do you think I'm doing? I mean, how are you doing really? Like, why are we even asking each other that question anymore? But the one word that's like floating in my consciousness is disembodied. And I think that especially when we're living our lives on Zoom and on the internet, and that's really all we have for most of us at this point is virtual connection outside of our own nuclear family. If we have those people in our house. Like I find that I'm really struggling with feeling embodied and feeling connected. Like my brain and my intellect are connected to my physicality. And I think your work is so interesting to me because the way you talk about voice is both 
like metaphorical, but also very physical. And I'm just wondering, is this something that you're noticing as a commonality? And if so, how does one start to work towards embodiment when we're really living this alternative virtual life? So you've hit something else that we were absolutely looking at a nail on the head, which is, again, this disembodiment from being on camera, but also just in general, a disembodiment that we have in our workplaces, this like, I need to leave everything neck down behind. It's it's more exacerbated, I think, being on camera, but it's not new. So, I mean, there's a couple of different levels to that. We got another bee in our bonnet with this project of authenticity to also dive as deeply into power. So we just created our first group course that launched last weekend on all of these elements of physicality, both vocal and how you walk into a room, how you carry yourself, how you can actually work with your five senses to bring more of you, both not just like more of you to speak out, but more of you to listen as well. So if I were getting started with this idea of I want to become more embodied, I think the first thing I would remember is you don't just have a body, you are a body. And we've become, I think, adapted to this way we see ourselves on the screen, which is, you know, chest up, or sometimes if you're not as good at this, you get this or like the up the nose or, or like the, the this or you whatever. And the moment you remember you have a body, then you can start to realize, okay, I'm actually connected. My neck is connected to my shoulders, connected to my chest, connected to my ribs, connected to my pelvis. And the way our bodies work, even if we're ignoring that we have a pelvis, doesn't mean it's still not, you know, operating. So I always use the example when we're talking about, you know, being online, I just made my voice go up just a a touch. This is all I did was squeeze my butt. That's all. So as I realize, oh, I have a body, I have a butt, and I let my butt be big. That's, you know, one step towards embodiment that exists neck down. On a technical level, I feel like if we can start to play with our Zoom picture frame screens, like why do we have to just be here up? Why can't you arrange something where you're sitting on a different chair or a physio ball or even on the floor, depending on what the context of the meeting is? There's a ton of room to play with the body. And I think those two things, remembering you have one, and then how can I bring bring it to the table? Am I, am I actually restricted to this tiny box or is there more that I can do? Keeping in mind that when we, we leave our bodies, we do that for self-preservation reasons a lot of times because we don't want to feel emotions. We restrict our breathing so we can actually hold ourselves together. So when I say, yes, it's great to become embodied, that also might be something that maybe isn't possible right now because there's just too much in the world. Yeah. And then what you said at the beginning, how am I doing? We had a a wonderful guest on our podcast named Kate O'Neill, who said, I usually say I'm fine, asterisk. (laughs) (laughs) And I think that's just, that just is what it is because we have this coupled pair of language. How are you? I'm fine, which is how we break the ice. No one's actually asking how you are, but we're (laughs) in a situation in the world right now where how are you is kind of the question we do want to ask everyone. So yeah, we love I'm fine asterisk. Just to add to what Julie was saying about the exploration of the body, as we've been working on this, this course that we just launched and diving really deeply into some of our more esoteric actor tools are 
more body-based actor tools, I was reminded of different ways of framing sensation in the body. And I was actually talking to a client this morning about this. She was feeling, first of all, she was doing her session really, really early in the morning. And she usually wakes up super early, but she slept in this morning. So she wasn't quite awake. I'm like, well, good. Let's just take this time to like do a really slow, easy warm up. And we talked about the the four ways of perceiving the body, interoception, exteroception, proprioception, and kinesthesia. So interoception is our sense of the inside of our body, right? I'm hungry. I have a headache. My neck hurts. I am really tense right now. Exteroception being your senses, how you're perceiving the world around you. Proprioception being my sense of my body in space in relation to other objects, which we are all hyper attendant to proprioception right now because we're all trying to not invade other people's personal spaces when we move around. Like the six feet rule, that is totally proprioception. And then kinesthesia, how our body actually moves. So I said something to her this morning and I was like, oh yeah, that was a really smart thing I just said. We often only pay attention to interoception when we're sensing something bad. Like we only pay attention to our body when something negative is going on. Like I'm in pain right now. I'm tense right now. I have a headache right now. Like what if we were able to cultivate a real connection with our body when it's actually working well or when it's just doing its thing. Like your body doesn't even have to be, you know, a prima ballerina or an Olympic athlete or whatever to have things that are actually doing okay. Like, yeah, my neck hurts today, but you know what? I had a good workout yesterday and I'm feeling that soreness in my hamstrings that said like, I worked hard and I did a thing today. So I think what I would love to give as advice to anyone who's listening to this is don't just pay attention to your body when something's wrong with it. Pay attention to your body and kind of love on your body a little bit in all of its states, because that's all useful knowledge that we can bring to living our lives. It's a little less disembodied and a little bit more embodied. You know, I love your comment. I'm fascinated by this whole, like our culture, all communication is based on Zoom. Zoom has become this normalized word that is like, everyone knows, it's like a verb now, let's assume. So it's interesting to think about showing up, not just like, our voice on Zoom, but also our physical bodies. One of the, my favorite things with the pandemic is watching the news and having all the reporters all over the world. And you get to peek into their like apartments and see, I'm always looking at the books behind them. So I kind of love that. And then I also laugh at all like the ones who clearly have never used Zoom before and have it super low. So you truly are looking up at their nose and, you know, <laughs> double chin and everything. And it's like, can you just raise that camera up a little bit? So that I love that. But it's like, when we sit down to a meeting, what I am finding, not so much with Jenny or on our team, but in other situations, I just shut up. Like I don't talk on Zoom. I lose my voice on Zoom because there's too many people and that body language or that small nuance, like, you know, is totally lost. And I just like lean back and make my head not so big on the screen. And I just listen and I shut down and I don't want to speak on any Zoom meetings. Is that just me? Please say no. It's not just you at all. The thing to remember, I think with a lot of these, as we switched to Zoom, meeting facilitation changed. It can no longer be a free-for-all, jump in when you feel like it. The technology doesn't support that. So I would say a meeting where you feel like you just want to shut up and take it in is probably one that has not yet been shifted to Zoom with the more active facilitation that being on Zoom requires. Somebody who likes to take in the whole screen of, of things that's a really good quality. I'm always sort of baffled by the the self-punishment that comes with it. Like I should speak up more. Well, maybe, maybe we don't need more people saying more bullshit. Find out what <laughs> right. you actually want to say 
and then be able to lean into that instead of this like kind of low grade pressure of I'm supposed to jump in, but I don't know the rules of engagement here. This is exactly what we were exploring both the summer with authenticity and now with the framework of power, what we call communication micro societies. So we develop these rules of engagement in each of kind of our, our relationships, whether they're a one-on-one relationship, like a partnership or a larger relationship within a team at an office or a family, or even like the really large ones, like cultural communication, we call them communication core values, which is our subconscious rules of engagement and how we communicate with each other. So in a lot of workplaces, we've created a meeting culture in which people are expected to just jump in. That is how we do things. And that could be either because Maybe the founder is really extroverted and he's hired a bunch of extroverted people. And then the team expands and a couple introverts come on and suddenly everybody's bulldozing each other. I bring it back to the example of my Midwestern family. So my Midwestern family is loud and joyous and there's always kind of side conversations and people jump in with parentheticals and it's a very bouncy rhythm as opposed to my husband's family, which is a little bit more like Julie's family, that people are not interrupting each other. It's not part of their culture. And in fact, it's considered very rude to interrupt. So when I first got into a relationship with my husband and I did my enthusiastic interrupting thing, it drove him bonkers. And I kept being like, it's not because I'm not interested in what you have to say. It's just, I'm so sorry. It's a habit, but I had to learn to shift my habits. And when the given circumstances change, like now suddenly we're on Zoom, Or when we want to start to create a more inclusive work culture, we have to look at what the subconscious rules are. Whether or not we've stated rules of engagement, there are rules of engagement. And I think, again, for the modern workplace where it's like, we're not hierarchical. Everybody's cool here. It's a flat organization. That's a lovely goal to have. What it actually means is that When you don't communicate the rules, people have to intuit the rules. And if you intuit the rules wrong, you get punished. You're not considered part of the tribe. So this is where things get really important and why facilitation matters. Why setting a culture, if you want people to feel heard, if you want the introverts in your office to be able to speak up, You have to help facilitate that. Introvert-friendly meetings mean it's not about jumping in immediately. Maybe we set something on the table and we say, everybody take one or two minutes to just jot down some ideas and then we'll raise hands. One really simple thing to do because introverts tend to want to process their thoughts and then speak them, whereas extroverts, and of course this is not a perfect correlation, Extroverts tend to formulate their thoughts while they're speaking. None of that's right or wrong. It's just different, but some things work better for other people. So that's super interesting because we just recently changed our weekly team meetings because the culture, the unwritten rule is that you join Zoom and you mute Mm -hmm. and you sit back and you wait for someone else to leave, right? And so we made this rule that when you come on at the beginning, we call it coffee and donuts. And like, when you come on to the team meeting, everybody unmute. And I am encouraging everyone just to to talk, like, tell me what happened the weekend. Like, tell me what you did personally, you know, tell me a story, like what you do. 
And now I see that that was like the rules of engagement. Are you mute in Zoom? And I saw this super funny meme that was like, Zoom meetings are basically modern day seances. Have you seen that? <laughs> <laughs> no. It's like, hello, yes. hello, Julie. Julie, are you there? Can you hear me? I can't hear you. Are you there? Is anyone there? <laughs> That's I was like, excellent. oh my God, that's yes. it. <laughs> that's it. So that's interesting, but I love the idea of introvert friendly because I'm an extrovert and I am shutting down on Zoom meetings. So to be more aware that there's probably people who are, you know, feeling, you know, have something to say and it just, just this platform is not working for them. So anyway, thank you for that. That's very cool. We also have other tools. Like that's Tell part us. of it. It's like, well, Zoom has other tools, right? We have the chat box now. Oh, Things yeah, like yes, we didn't yes. know, you know what I mean? So this is part of, and you know, after we wrote the authenticity paper, we decided that we wanted to do a big event around it. We wanted to have, we were calling it part town hall, part, what was it? Part cabaret, part, it was just like a whole thing. So we wanted to do this event and get our friends in the same space to talk about authenticity. And I had already done a few events via Zoom where I was basically playing kind of like Carol Burnett variety hour. And I got a bunch of my performer friends and we did little shows. So we took this medium that is very imperfect, but also very cool. And we're like, okay, what can we do with this new medium? What are the things that we couldn't do in real life that we can do here? Like run polls, like have people do things in the chat, like have different segments. There's room for creativity here that if we just treat it like an imperfect version of real life, we're ignoring all the possibilities that we have now. Use the other tools at your disposal. Physical body language is great. I have something to say, right? Or you can do, there's a hand raising reaction. Like why not use the tools that are available? Yeah. I mean, it's so interesting because we've been using Zoom for five years to run our company. Even before that, Sandy, we were just kind of working together before we were officially working together, we would meet on Zoom. And so for us, I think we have this, it's like, it just always been a part of our company, but I think what is so dramatic is that now it's everything else as well. And so it just, now this is all the, it feels like it's all that there is, but it's, it's a great reminder that that just looking at our little picture video squares isn't all that there is. And there's also like phone, <laughs> you know, it's, I feel like it's so luxurious. There's a couple of, oh, my power went out a couple of weeks ago for the entire day. And so Sandy and I were talking on the phone that day. And like, it was so weird when people heard that we were talking on the phone, <laughs> one of our coworkers, Sandy said, oh, I was on the phone with Jenny. And she was like, who does that? Why? <laughs> who does that? But it was so lovely. It was just this, like, I could go on a walk and sit up by the fire and have my family around me. And it was like, I didn't have to worry that I was looking at a glowing box. And it was just like this reminder of, you know, these other ways that we, these other tools that we have accessible to us that are actually like really quite lovely. Who knew? Something also really important to consider, and this is partly why we've shifted our focus of what we're doing to really take into account the stress response. Because in the pandemic, as we've seen with everyone working from home, there's something that I I was seeing from an actor's perspective is we're not getting a chance to switch between roles. We have different voices for different people we interact with. You know, I, I heard my wife's work voice. There were all of these articles at the beginning of the pandemic. There is no time to shift, or maybe there can be time if, it's, if you're aware that it's needed but to go straight from literally walking into a different room or not from, you know, mom role to 
office role out to you know whatever other role and then back that is very taxing and as actors when we're switching characters we do take that moment okay i'm buttoning this what's the given circumstances of the next this kind of actually goes back to what we're saying about authenticity if the i just show up how i am is the overarching narrative then we feel like we shouldn't need to switch between characters except that we do the question is like, who the hell am I in this moment? That's exactly that was my reaction to that. It's, like, yes, exactly. It's disorienting, and it's because we are context dependent. It's not like the you of you has disappeared. You're just suddenly getting all of this evidence that's saying, "Wow, oh, I didn't realize." Kind of, it's not that everyone's different. It's that we have this amount of raw materials of who we are that sort of alchemizes with our given circumstances in different ways. So I would say that that's also a part of why Zoom meetings can become overwhelming. Because in addition to who am I, <laughs> which is already you know, a, a fairly large question now, oh, new rules of engagement. Oh, what am I expecting? Oh, I care about these people. I don't actually know how to find out how they are. There's this wall between me and them, but we're all pretending oh this God, is normal yes. and fine. And none of it's normal and fine. No, my husband, his mother just passed away this week. And so we're navigating that like with connection and reaching out and, oh my God. So we've got like WhatsApp, like that's how we're mourning her loss and sharing memories. And so all of this, you know, like I would love to stand up at a funeral and tell my stories about her. Right. But we just, we cannot do that. They were just rewriting all of this. Like it's, it just feels like there's nothing, like there's no way to express how we feel and what we're thinking and what we want to, like, there's no gathering, obviously. It's just, it's just bizarre. So I'm looking at how we're using Zoom and in this case, WhatsApp to mark this transition in all of our lives. So it's so important to just remember that to, rem I mean, I know everyone is sick to death of the phrase unprecedented times or whatever, but mm -hmm. like truly, I mean, this is not something that our bodies and our spirits were designed to deal with designed to deal with kind of a, a constant level, like low to mid level of danger and a sense of danger in our lives and this constant sense of uncertainty. It's like when the spinny ball of death appears on your computer screen because too many processes are running. Like that's basically where we are at all times. <laughs> I remember there was a meme early in the pandemic that was like, it was something like, if you don't come out of this time with your novel written or a new skill learned or a blah, 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 it was never that you didn't have time. You didn't have the motivation. And I was like, oh, like my inner flaming middle finger was like ignited for the gods. I was like, that is some hustle culture bullshit is what that is. I hope I can curse. I'm sorry. Like, it's just, we have to be patient with ourselves right now. Yeah. But at the same time, I'm so desperate for some precedent. Like, let's just give me oh, some God, precedent. Right? <laughs> Can we get some precedent soon, please? <laughs> Do you say precedent or president? <laughs> oh. Both in, the, in your guys' case. Yes. <laughs> so I had no idea we we're going to talk so much about Zoom today. It's all relevant, you know? And it's such a huge part of it. Yeah, I have a question for both of you that I've been wanting to ask because this is like the issue that haunts me and follows me around because I'm an introvert and I come from an academic background and I live my life in my head and I really 
I think value humility over any other quality or characteristic. And so I talk about this almost every day, but you're the perfect people to ask this question to. So for both of you, you talk about power and you talk about voice in your work. And I just, I would love to hear from you. How do you balance the humility of listening with that other side that we all have of the power of sort of sharing our voice and how do each of you do that individually? And I guess let's start with Julie. I am an introvert as well. So I think what you just said illustrates something I've been observing as a shift in communication culture, which is when people come to us, I want to work on my voice. They mean, I want to work on my output to the world, but it's not separate from your input. So when we talk about listening, we listen because that gives us information for what comes next. This, this idea of preciousness of, I must have the, I'm like carrying it like it's precious baby for people who can't see, who have the perfect sentence, the perfect idea. This is only about me to you, not about our exchange. I think this time is really illustrating that we need to remember that listening is part of talking. So I don't think you can empower one without strengthening the other. It's sort of like color is great unless you have no empty space and then you're just like over, blah, that's, that's a lot of stimulation. You need the negative space as much as you need the positive space. Because I do think that when it comes to listening, I think I get asked most some variation of how do I make it look like I'm listening while I'm still thinking about what I want to say next. It's <laughs> so true. And I don't know what to I, say. I don't that. know how to handle that because that's, at all. <laughs> that's not listening. That's horrifying. I love that Casey's just cracking up in the back. Don't think listen. <laughs> Humility, it is not an example of not having humility to talk a lot. And it's not an example of humility to talk less. I think that they're sort of separate. And as long as we look at our status as being based on how much I've been allowed to talk, then we're going to run into some trouble. That's my thoughts on that. Casey and I have had lengthy conversations about this stuff. I want to brag on Julie for a second because... Part of our partnership and the way that it's developed over the now almost seven years that we've been doing this together has been this really interesting navigation of an introvert extrovert dynamic because I'm the resident extrovert. Shocking, I know, right? And I, I have learned so much from watching how Julie navigates the world and how she listens and how she takes in information and then puts out information. And I know she would say the same thing about me. So part of the dance of us as co-founders, and I think that it has only vastly enriched our work with clients, is I have had to learn to think like an introvert, and she has had to learn to think like an extrovert. And I would love to sort of separate out the issues of what it means to have power with, as Julie was saying, how much you talk, because those two things are totally separate. They are entwined in our culture in a lot of reasons, I think, because we in America tend to deify extroversion as confidence, like extroversion equals confidence, introversion equals shyness or tentativeness or whatever. And that's not true either. One of the questions that we ask on our podcast, we ask everybody if they consider themselves to be an introvert or an extrovert. And nearly everyone says, you know, I'm a little bit of both, which is true. We really are almost always a little bit of both. The older I get, I feel like the more introverted I get. 
but it's just, we have to kind of redefine the cultural story. And this is this, again, we love looking at like, what is this accepted narrative about this and how can we redefine it? We're very focused on that in a lot of arenas, but the accepted narrative of what power looks and sounds like and what confidence looks and sounds like needs revision. It needs widening. It needs more input from more sources and more diverse voices and more diverse experiences on the planet so that we can say, to someone who is a little quieter, but takes in all the information and then, you know, adds the exact right thing that that meeting needs to have in it. That is a beautiful kind of power and confidence, just as the person who can kind of hold court and be funny and fabulous and charismatic. Sure, that's a kind of power and confidence too, but it's not one is confident and one is not confident. One is powerful and one is not powerful. I compare it to, I'm very upset that this has become a problematic example based on the author's behavior, but I'm going to talk for just a moment about Harry Potter characters. What often happens when people come to us is they think they're modeling themselves or they need to learn more skills like Mr. Dursley, who isn't actually very (laughs) powerful in the books. He's very blustery, yelly, all of that, but not powerful versus Dumbledore, who doesn't speak for 600 pages and suddenly gives like a half a paragraph and we're just like, oh, you've made the world make sense to me. And looking at it in that way, we can find a lot of examples of very powerful people that only speak the mic drop moment and leave the prelude to the rest of the world. (laughs) That is a great example. And then of course there's all like gender comes into this, right? Like women in power and voice. Go Casey. Oh God, I could, well, I could talk your ears off about this for, you know, the rest of the millennium, but I want to actually say a, that we do work with men and we have some wonderful men clients. It's been an interesting ride, especially with our corporate clients in 2019, which was sort of the last year that we traveled. We ended up doing our very first ever all dude presentation. We were hired by this tech company to come in and work with a set of engineers who were managers and to work on their communication. And we expected a co-ed room and we walked into a room full of men. And it was very interesting for us to kind of immediately adjust to a, a different set of given circumstances and then to take in what was happening in the room in front of us. So these guys were all probably in their 30s, maybe early 40s. All of them were tall and all of them were good looking, which was another interesting cultural issue, but they were all kind of in their chairs. And I'm going to demonstrate this quickly because I know I'm about to back off my microphone. They were all in their chairs, kind of like slumped back, like arms crossed and a little furrow in the brow and a little like, like they all, all of their posture easily could have said to us, prove yourself to me. I don't think you know what you're talking about, or I am completely bored and disengaged right now. We could have run with that assumption, but being us, we were very curious. And what we kind of realized fairly quickly is that they actually were with us. They were engaged. They respected us, but all of them were making themselves smaller physically to signal something. And as we kept talking with them, it came up that in the culture of their office, they're a totally, well, again, pre-pandemic, they were a totally open plan office with no walls. They valued quiet in the office, 
They had a very flat structure of their organization and none of them wanted to be intimidating. And they thought what they were doing by slumping back and making themselves smaller was not being an intimidating man. They actually cared very deeply about not being an intimidating dude. And instead what they were signaling was, I don't give a shit about this. So it was like, that's the kind of stuff that's so interesting for us to tease apart. Julie, do you want to kind of tell a little bit more about this? No, keep going. I'm with you. I'm with you. (laughs) (laughs) I introduced this, I guess, to say that, first of all, the gender binary needs to die because it's not a binary. Second of all, we have absolutely privileged male voices in how we think of leadership, how we think of confidence for millennia of, you know, world history. And in order to start to deal with what we see, which is the disproportionate criticism of women's voices, we have to start examining where that criticism is coming from. And we have to start to look at like, what's real criticism and what's not real criticism. So one of the things that we know about the feedback that women get in general, not just about their their voices, is that women in workplace environments tend to get more impression-based feedback and they get less concrete, actionable feedback. So it's more like you seem intimidating or you seem not confident enough. You need to speak up more. So they'll they'll tell them these very impression-based feedback things and then give them nothing to do about it, give them no evidence for why that feedback is happening in the first place. But it's like, how do you respond to that? And for most of our clients, how you respond to that is go, okay, it's time to fix myself. I've got to fix myself. And we don't actually understand like, for women, here's my here's a big question. If someone is calling you intimidating, why are they calling you intimidating? What do they get out of calling you intimidating? Are they actually intimidated by you? Or is that just a really convenient way to put you in your place and to say, mm, I find you a bit too confident. I find you a bit too much. You should back off. There's a fabulous interview with Amanda Gorman, the inauguration poet who was just like, I just, I'm obsessed with her. She's my new favorite voice on the planet where she was talking about how she was in a poetry class and a white man told her that her writing was too confident. And she was like, too confident? Like it is worth Googling this interview. Amanda Gorman, PBS, too confident? Because her reaction is what I want every woman's reaction to be, which is why did he say that to me? What does he get out of that? Do I think that that's true? No, I don't think that's true. So I don't have to accept it as legitimate feedback. I've been called intimidating my whole life. And it always just fast. I'm like, I am, I don't like, it does not compute with me at all. So that's interesting. (laughs) Where can people find your white paper turned book on authenticity? Where would we get such information? You can find it on our website in case you correct me if I'm wrong on this, but it's vitalvoicetraining.com backslash authenticity. Is that correct? Yes. Great. <laughs> that is correct. Yes. Casey keeps details so for parts. me because not my strengths. <laughs> it's at that site. It's in three parts and all three parts are on there. At some point, we're probably going to take it down and actually try to like add to it and like really publish it. Right now it's there for free. Get it while it's hot, kids. At some yeah. point, hopefully we're going to, you know, like maybe try to sell it like business people do, to- you know? Give you a little bit about, you know, we Casey talked about it a bit. We titled it The Fable, The Failure, and the Future of Authenticity. 
So we wanted to talk about what it was supposed to represent, how it fails people, but also not leave people with like that Empire, wait, it wouldn't be Empire Strikes Back. Yeah, it would be. The Empire Strikes Back. There's always that middle movie of a trilogy of it, the of trilogy, <laughs> where things are just too dark. We wanted to take you all the way through. So we included a part three, the future of our thoughts of how to find what we call functional authenticity in the world. And Casey, I'm going to let you, you have such a beautiful way of speaking about functional authenticity. Yeah. Functional authenticity for us. And I'm actually going to look it up because I still ha don't have this memorized. <laughs> I actually want to read our definition because it's good. Um, <laughs> It's so good that I can't remember it. <laughs> it's so good that I can't remember it. Isn't that the truth, right? The biggest finding of the authenticity paper was that we have to stop thinking of authenticity as an individual pursuit and start to consider it to be a community practice, basically. Julie, I'm going to let you expound on that while I look up the definition of functional <laughs> authenticity. <laughs> yes, it has to be a community practice for all of the themes that we have been touching on this entire conversation, that it has to do with the core values. It has to do with team leader values. It has to do with, we play a really large role in creating our own you know, cultures and atmospheres, but not the entire role. We're going to deal with people's gut bias. We're going to deal with people that aren't a good cultural fit, you know, whatever that means. We're going to deal with a lot of this stuff. To just tell somebody, bring your whole self to work with no armor, no nothing. That is a cruel thing to do. And it's very cruel to tell people that your success is going to be limited if you can't just override every survival instinct of your entire life. It's your fault. It's yet another way to blame the individual when it's something that I think as a culture, we really can start to expand and embrace. Did you find it, Casey? So I found it. I found it. <laughs> so functional authenticity acknowledges the survival imperative, which is that at all times, the first and most important goal of our brain is to survive. It acknowledges the connection between the individual and the audience. Authenticity happens in front of an audience. Nobody cares if you're authentic while you're eating Doritos on your couch watching Netflix. Uh, functional authenticity acknowledges the web of bias and power structures that we all exist in. It also identifies where we have agency and gives a model for taking empowered action. So functional authenticity for the individual. How do I more consistently show up as the person I want to be? And how do I increase the probability that other people see me clearly? So more consistently means I cannot do this perfectly and it is a practice. Show up means authenticity is a practice of action, not just feeling. Whether or not we feel authentic is part of it, but it's actually only a very small part of it. The person I want to be means that we have to be doing the work. We have to be self-reflecting. We have to be doing the productive navel gazing of figuring out who we want to be in the world and acknowledging the flexibility within that and increase the probability that other people see me clearly. All of this is happening in the context of communication with other people, and I don't have ultimate control over it. That's why I haven't memorized it yet. It's a lot, you guys. <laughs> Come on, Casey. Yeah. No, that's really good. And I also think we get a lot of questions in our community about how do I be authentic on social media and stuff. So that's super helpful to define that. I'll probably whip that definition off in our next coaching call, just off the top of my head. 
good. Super easy. But that raises an interesting question though, because if it's communication is a two-way street or multi-way street all the time and on social, you don't always get the feedback coming back at you. So the ability to gauge whether you're hitting that mark is more complicated than if when you're in a room of people. So I wonder if you have an ever response to that. Like, how do you show up that way when the feedback isn't complete from the audience or from the people that you're speaking to? Or is it just a synchronous and you just accept that? It is asynchronous. I mean, there's so, so many studies about our dopamine feedback loops right now with likes and comments and all of that. I think when it comes to social media, the trap that I see is people showing up as, you know, authenticity dot. TM. This is my authentic crayon version of myself. (laughs) So I do think that, you know, working with an outside eye and an expert that you really trust that also values authenticity can help kind of give you those boundaries, those mirrors. When we talk to other people, we do see a version of ourselves reflected back to us that sometimes matches how we see ourselves and sometimes doesn't. So you want to work with someone you trust because ultimately what we're bringing in to social media, you have to figure out, you know, what exactly Uh, of myself am I bringing that's authentic? Because we also see the people that think that authenticity, we go over this in the paper too, is I must pour my guts out. I must be a bleeding mess because that's authenticity. It's a strategy. It's a spectrum. Yeah. I guess how much you want to call it, call in your authenticity crayon and how much you just want to find a part of yourself that resonates with you that you want to bring out into the world. Mm -hmm. It's so weird to live lives on the internet. And I think this is exacerbated again by the pandemic, but like really in general, like we used to be in community where someone could see, like see you at the grocery store and see what car you drive and see your family. And like, it's a whole other way of connection where you kind of are authentic, right? Like this is who I, you can't hide it. Like it's harder to hide it when you're Mm -hmm. in real life. And then, but in these curated digital spaces, you can just cherry pick what you share. And it's such a weird thing to navigate. And I think that's why this question about authenticity comes up so often in the online world is because like, you really can, like, I don't share hardly anything about my life on the internet, mostly because I'm introverted and just like, I think it's super weird to share it and I'm paranoid about it, but also just like, I don't know when that information, you know, like kid pictures or whatever are going to be used in whatever oh, way, yeah. but, but like, it's such a strange thing because people who know me in my real life understand the complexity of who I am and my interests. And, you know, like, how does that work when you have this ability, this, like we've never had as humans to really be able to like, say, these are the, this tiny layer of facts or things about me that you're allowed to see. And I can just kind of like repress the rest of it or hide it, or just not show you the rest of it in this part of my life. What you hit on beautifully there is like, there's no room for serendipity in how we present ourselves on the internet because it's, we're choosing it. Yeah. And I think that there's an idea that once you put intention onto authenticity, it's no longer authenticity. And that's just not true, right? You can be intentional. You can build frameworks and still be authentic. It's, Authenticity is not an on or off switch. That's one thing that I think is really important for people to understand. I think, as Julie said, like people have an idea of authenticity as messiness 
And that is also not necessarily the truth, but it's boundaries. It's like, we got to build boundaries and we, we have to think about, okay, so this is part of the navel gazing stuff. And so much of what we're doing with this, the, first, the first cohort of our power play course is being really intentional about like, what do I know about myself to be true? What are my core beliefs? What are my core values? What are the things that I'm really good at? My core strengths. And how can I put those out into the world with intention, not in order to create like a shellacked layer all over all of my vulnerabilities, but in order to kind of lead with what I want and then also bring the vulnerability to the table as well, because we are craving vulnerability. We're craving realness. We're craving not seeing the mess, but seeing, seeing the questions, seeing people figure stuff out in the moment. I think that that's we're, we are desperately missing that. And that I think is something that you find often in moments of serendipity where you run into somebody and they see a part of you that you've never shown anyone before. And suddenly you're like, how do I navigate this? That's fascinating. We can't really do that online, but I don't know. It feels like there's room for creativity there. And there's, and again, so boundaries, knowing yourself and what you do want to show the world and then being creative with like, where can we go from there? And also considering on social media, it really is such a big exercise and I'm comparing my insides to somebody else's outsides. I mean, I think as we go forward, we're going to see a little bit less kind of like monolithic Instagram, Facebook as the ways we show up in social media. But I also just took a note that you also have to look at when people say, I want to show up authentically, but I also want engagement and metrics on my social media post is, is the question they're really asking is how can my authenticity be the most popular? Like they're two different, they're very different questions <laughs> you, to show up authentically versus I want more followers. They're both valid and important questions, but you got to recognize they're different questions. I mean, I think part of this is also just about being multidimensional because there, there's everything that you're saying. And then there's, I mean, our show, this, we've wanted to make this show about the fact that we are multidimensional, that we can be, you know, parents and we can be building a startup and we can be also having like really in-depth conversations about power and money, you know, and, and worth. And so like, we're all of those things. And I guess personally, I'm a lawyer, I'm an environmental, like when I'm in a courtroom with a monkey suit on, cause that's what it feels, that's like how I identify in that role. Like I show up in one role, right? And I think as actors, maybe this is how you see this, but like, I, like I'm like i in my mom role or I'm in my lawyer role or I'm in my like CEO role or I'm in my activist in my town role. And I feel like it's so confusing because we're able to, to bifurcate ourselves and like actually play these roles that it's like, where do you show up as your whole self and where is that actually appropriate? And I think what we learned from social media is like, it's too messy to be all of those things in one place. Like your metrics will not work. You can't be all of those things, but it like really internally, I am all of those things. And I don't have anywhere in my life because of the internet, I feel like where I actually do show up like that, which is so weird. I'm wondering how much of this. So first of all, I would say that all of those selves are you. They're all you, right? You know that. Yeah. But I think it's important to say that out loud. Like your mom self is you, your lawyer self is you. All of these things are you. They're aspects of you. We are multidimensional human beings. But I wonder how much of this, like the stratification of roles and the idea that we need to like lean into those roles and like that is a character that is kind of outside of ourselves is like capitalism talking. 
and personal brand talking. It's like when social media does this, right? We need to be a unified brand so people understand us, so they know what they're engaging in. Well, yeah, but like that doesn't mean that that part of you is now like you've like monetized it and made it separate from you. It is still you. This is where it just gets so juicy and interesting because there's not like an answer to this. It's like, but it's getting underneath it and figuring out why the course and some of what we're exploring is the idea of like, what is your lawyer drag? Like we're bringing in a drag performer (laughs) specifically because as a guest artist, because we want to talk about alter ego. We want to talk about costume and movement and you know, you can approach a character from the inside out. You can approach a character from the outside in. It doesn't matter. They're both valid ways of creating a character and they're useful to us as people who, you know, sometimes I do need to like turn down my mom self and like ratchet up my like ball buster self. And none of that is a problem because we're multidimensional and because we're creative and because we're these beautiful, bright, shining, weird masses of habits and crap and dreams and love and all of that stuff. Like we're all just human beings trying to human. And God forbid we should cause confusion with our social media posts about who we are, right? Don't oh, do no. that. Like no. brand message. <laughs> Your brand will suffer. Yes. You guys absolutely <laughs> should talk to Phonique, who's the one who's going to be teaching for us. She is some of your questions, I would love to hear her field them. Uh, just brilliant, so sensitive, and with such an awareness, this intuitive engagement in these different parts of herself as she creates these drag characters. Yeah, very, very I highly recommended. Some drag characters. What? <laughs> yes. Sign up. I want to sign up right now. Yes, 100%. Cool. Think about that. When it comes Perfect. to the next meeting with some drag characters. All right, Jenny, should we do Join Hustle? Let's do it. Okay. So we end every episode by asking our guests to share a joy and a hustle. So something in your lives that's bringing you joy right now and a tool that can help our listeners hustle in their career or business. So let's start with you, Casey. So right now what's keeping me sane and what has been for almost a calendar year is my Tuesday night happy hours with my girlfriends. We put together this group and it kind of join, you know, organically developed. And there's about six of us. We are now so comfortable with each other that last Tuesday night, one of the women was wearing a bathing suit in her bathtub while she was on the zoom call. Another one was laying in her bed underneath her covers. Like this is the level of comfort that we have now (laughs) because it's just like, we're all here and we're, it's very, it's, it's a beautiful, beautiful thing. It's my weekly therapy and hustle wise taking breaks. Because I think as a type A perfectionist person who grew up in American hustle culture, I tried to go and go and go and go and go. And I was looking back on my old calendar from like two years ago the other day and looking at the the way I used to schedule myself with like five clients in a row and a networking event at night and like trying to hustle through admin stuff in the morning. And I was like, how did I do that to myself? So now I actually intentionally build in breaks and time for creativity and my output is better. It's true. Imagine. Mm -hmm. So is that a break every day? What does that actually look like? Oh gosh. It's, I think it, what's the schedule of your breaks? It's listening to my body somewhat, but I've been very purposely reading for pleasure and not for work. And I've been very purposely trying to add back in like crafty DIY projects to my to my life. So I'm trying to do like at least 30 minutes of that every day. Mm-hmm. At least. Like you're, 
actually putting on your calendar though? Like this sometimes, sometimes it's on my calendar and sometimes it's just like, uh, I'm done and I need a break. Okay. I'm going to take 30 minutes and I'm going to come back. Okay. Yeah. Thank you. Well, I'm all about the crafting. Here's my tissue box cozy. It's so pretty. My my Bargello. I know Sandy made a lot of fun of me and I don't care. (laughs) It makes me so happy. I'm doing um, embroidery, like modern feminist embroidery. Oh yes. I I made that for her for for Christmas. Oh, yes. Let your bug be big. Is that what you were talking about in the conference? Let your bug be big. Yes, let your bug be big. That's the secret to gravitas. And the cathedral in your throat, is that part of it? Yes, the cathedral of the throat, yes. And let your butt be big. Oh my God. Yes. That is great. So what will you do with that, Julie? Where does that go? Right now, I sort of have it almost like I have this. I have a pillow that a dear friend who's since passed. I've got, well, right now the cat's next to it. Almost just like a squishy altar on my couch right now. It'll probably yeah, yeah, get framed yeah. somewhere. But for, for the moment, I just, I love both the phrase that it says and also just that each stitch was made thinking of something for me. And yeah. I, I just, I get really sentimental yeah. about that kind of stuff. <laughs> and stabbing things over and over again is very therapeutic right now. Just stab it, stab it over and over again. <laughs> oh God, that's so good. That's so good. Okay. Yes. How about you, Julie? For joy during the pandemic, I ended up taking a lot of walks. So this sort of goes into my way of taking breaks. So in 2020, I ended up at something like 2,300 miles total. I usually go about, the average was 6.1 miles a day. I have a friend, another drag performer, who I go on walks with, and we do these 13-mile epic walks usually once a week. That brings me such joy because it's so childlike, the way we walk. Oh, there's a staircase. Absolutely, we should explore that. Oh, a slide. Of course. We're going to be introducing roller skates into the equation very soon. So (laughs) (laughs) minor high tops, his are holograms. It's all good. Yeah. And then for hustle, I have developed an aversion to hustle deeply because it just doesn't, the harder I hustle, the more I feel like I burn out, but I do really enjoy getting engaged in projects. So once, once I can reframe what actually might be considered hustle as something that I want to do, I'm good. But I found the Pomodoro technique to be absolutely critical to me getting anything done. That's setting a timer for 15 minutes to just start and do a portion of a thing. There's just too much to do right now for me to create a whole perfect to-do list. I sometimes kind of have to reach into the hat and grab something out and just start there. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's awesome. I use brain.fm and Pomodoro. So I will turn yep, that. Yeah, absolutely. Yes. And then, so it's like focus 30 minutes or whatever. It's usually 30 minutes for me. And then, then it's defined mm-hmm. and it's nicer than a timer, like a, whatever was like the tomato timer that this started from <laughs> not doing that, but just have the 30 minute brain.fm thing. So well, that's awesome. Well, thank you guys. Thank you so much for your conversation and your insight and your wisdom. And uh, where can, you've mentioned already where people can find the writing on authenticity, but is that where they should go if they want to find more of you is your website? So yeah, our website is www.vitalvoicetraining.com or on Instagram at Vital Voice Training and on Twitter at vital underscore voice. And I know we're breaking all the social media rules by having different handles. Only Sorry, one. guys. <laughs> yeah, that's where we spend most of our time. We're, we're trying to build up our LinkedIn presence. That's a thing that we're supposed to do. We're working on it. But yes, we love Instagram and Twitter both. So well, thank you. Well, thank you so much. This is so much fun. This is delightful. Yes. <laughs> oh, you guys are so great. Thank you for your wonderful, insightful questions, too.
Ready to go from, I really want to build an online business, but don't know where to start, to, wow, I've just sold my first digital product. That's exactly what we're going to help you do during our free Become an Online Teacher course. We've created a simple five-day email-based course to teach you everything you need to get started as an online teacher. By the end of the week, you'll have a digital product that's mapped out, priced, and ready to offer your community. Head over to soulful.mba teacher to sign up. It's totally free. 